Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and it is a joy to bring you this episode. It's with an old friend who's at the center of the upcoming movie about Mr. Rogers, starring Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. My friend is Tom Juneau. I've been working with Tom ever since the early 90s when we met at GQ Magazine through the editor David Granger, or Granger, as we call him. When David left GQ to take over at Esquire in 1997, Tom, myself, and several other writers went along with him. It was the start of a 20-year run that would fill the magazine's entryway with awards and leave behind the kind of journalism that the world will probably never see again. David is one of the best magazine editors to ever live, and Tom is one of the best magazine writers to ever live. And it was a blessing to share that time with them, and a very good time it was. Tom and I grew up 14 miles apart on Long Island, he in Wontaw, me in Deer Park, and we came to be close at Esquire, but I never knew the depth of his story until we sat for this conversation. The profile that Tom wrote about the man in the red sweater who shaped the lives of millions of kids across America through his show was published at the end of 1998. As you'll hear, I saw it as a very important story in the arc of Tom's life, but for reasons that are very different from what you'll see in the movie. Now, Tom's name has been changed in the movie, and the story of Tom's complicated relationship with his father has been made up by the screenwriters to give the movie a powerful story arc, and yet there are some major overlaps in what you'll see on the screen and what Tom felt in his life through his experience with Mr. Rogers. I went to see a preview with Tom, and I gotta say, I've never seen another movie quite like it. The acting is wonderful, and there's a profound message about connection and forgiveness that is so relevant for the present day in America. You'll hear some banter about my sponsor, Sportique, in this episode. So no need for a commercial here, but you know the drill. If you'd like to get a 20% discount, go to sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com and use the offer code CAL. Now, let's get straight to, and let me see if I can give you my best boxing announcer, Michael Buffer introduction, Tom Juno. We're on, brother. All right, man. I got to say, people who listen to Big Questions every week, they know when I talk about my sponsor, which is a company that makes these amazing threads, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I left it at home and I didn't bring you your sporting hoodie. <laughs> but I will get it over to you before you leave because you're going to love how soft this is. And your dad would have loved it, too. My dad would never have worn a hoodie. Just no way. He would have worn it if no. it's made by Sportee. <laughs> <laughs> the, the old man never would have worn a hoodie, even though, you know, I mean, he, he continually obsessed about the loss of his hair. I mean, it was a continual, 
a howl against against the conditions of existence. You know that that my that he was that he that this man was losing his hair. Well, you know, and, I, I, and so maybe a hoodie would have worked. He would have felt how soft it is, and it might have <laughs> felt like a turtleneck to him. Might have felt like a cashmere turtleneck because we know one of your dad's rule of fashion, turtleneck is the most flattering thing a man could wear. You know, they're coming back. Tur- <laughs> turtlenecks are coming back. I have seen a turtleneck in like I got, 15 I got, years. I got three in my bag, my friend. Oh, man. We better fill that bag with sporty <laughs> goodies. But here's the point on this. When you, think I, I, you think I don't know the point? <laughs> <laughs> no, the point on this is for many years we've been having conversations. We're working at Esquire since... Yeah. 97 and GQ, what? I know. We've worked together for a really like long 30, time. Yeah, 30 years. We, and then even before that, we sort of had like a semi-connection because I was at Life and yeah, working, I was for, at Life working for Jay Lovinger that's, and that's so right. were you. Yeah. We didn't meet back then, though. We didn't meet until, until um, GQ. But one of the great things about our phone conversations is we would introduce each other as if we were both Michael Buffer. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you 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 wanted that voice. You wanted to be Michael Buffer. That's right, and I got yeah. to be as soon as you that did. sporty goodie <laughs> came in as a sponsor, and so. Part of those conversations has actually infiltrated into this podcast. Yes, it, it, it definitely has, and don't think I didn't know it. <laughs> so here's the thing. Let's start with your dad, because one of my favorite magazine pieces of all time, Yeah, my dad's fashion tips. Yeah. And it really kind of, in, in a, some way, sets the whole stage for this film. It definitely does. It definitely does. Um, so the, that story, I, I wrote it for uh, David Granger and GQ. Granger for David Granger, the Grand Granger as we call him, and uh, and yeah, and I wrote that in 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 '96, and it was a rundown of all of my father's ideas about how to dress, which were also really ideas about how to be a man. That was really what 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 he was uh, about, and you know, my father w- was. Um, I mean, he was, he was one of those guys that the surface meant everything to him. The surface was the, was the inner man. The outside was the inner man. And, and that's, I mean, that was the, an interesting thing because it, it sort of is, if you, if you um, position it against the story I wrote about Fred two years later, um, you see, I mean, there are two different paths that are set out uh, on, the, on how to be a man. Uh, my father setting one out, and uh, and Fred setting the other. I mean, Fred's Fred's favorite quote was from the Little Prince, and it was um, that which is essential is invisible to the eye. And my father's he didn't he never read the Little Prince in his life. Who's the Little <laughs> Prince? <laughs> Why is he little? You should follow the Big Prince. <laughs> but he um, for for my father, what was essential was. That which pleases the eye, you know, and 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 there was two really really different set of courses set out in those two stories. What was it like growing up with your dad? Because when you read that story and you see pictures of him, mm. it must have been like living with Dean Martin. 
Yeah, all, it was it was oh, like it was like living, you know, it was like living with you know, Sinatra, Dean uh, Martin. Yeah, Dean Martin, or, you know, or just a movie star. I mean, you know, my father was definitely the kind of guy who, you know, when he walked into a restaurant, I mean, people, people turned, the whole room turned their heads. Simply because of the way he looked. Because of the way he looked and just the, you know, the aura that he had, the aura of uh, command and charisma and authority. And, and of course, he would, you know, he would tell you this. See that woman over there? Yeah, Dad. Can't. Take her eyes off your father, <laughs> and and so I mean so and oh, that's man. all and that's all and that and, the, and that, that laughter was loaded. You, you know it's funny. It's we, we went and saw the preview last night. You've seen yeah. it a few times. It was my first, and I caught myself laughing when nobody else was, just yeah. because like I know I know the I know where you come from. Brother. Well, I think that I, when when I heard you la your, your laughter, I heard. Basically, that laughter also saying, "Oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> you know, here, we, here we go," and uh, and that's that's what I discerned in your in your laughter. That's pretty yeah, much yeah. what it, yeah, what yeah. it felt like. Yeah, yeah. Because your dad and the character who plays your dad yeah. in the movie uh, that dressed in a very different way. Well, as my father got older and poorer, <laughs> he he did not dress in the same way that he dressed when I was when I was a boy. My, you know, my dad, you know, definitely switched over from you know very very flashy suits and 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 ballet loafers and Floorsheim shoes and and you know custom made shirts and you know all of that. He had this he had this fantastic closet that that had two doors would swing open theater style, that was just you know full of suits and shoes and clothes and. Um, and but as he got older, he you know he kind of switched over to you know he had you know members he wore members only jackets. He wore a pair of jeans that he wore almost every day until they were beyond threadbare. They were like they were like cheesecloth, and sneakers you know that he that he you know could no longer reach over to tie, so he slipped them on his feet and polo shirts along with his gold dog tag. So it wasn't that different from the from the final wow. version of Chris Cooper. Because I, I didn't meet your dad at the in the final stages. Right, right. Wow. So he, he started dressing more like that that character as t as time as time went on. In fact, we used to always I used to even say to him, "How the mighty." Have fallen. Oh no! <laughs> but the thing—I mean, the thing that that is that is that is not in the movie, you know. So when when you have a father that is telling you that the woman in the corner of the restaurant can't take her eyes off him, I mean, that's a, a loaded—that's a loaded thing. It's not. It's, yeah, because you got to take into account your mom, who it wasn't like my father was a single man. He was—he was married. He was married to my mother. He lived with us, and you know he was down the hall, and 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 I knew what was going on. I knew the score, and and that was your, really and your mom accepted that your dad was. I mean, there was a I great scene in my father's fashion right. tips where he's out in like a Bill Blass. He's in a he's in a he's in a white suit. he's in a white jumpsuit jumpsuit yeah with a with a, a zipper a zipper that went all the way down to his navel. <laughs> <laughs> he, he dressed like Lola Falana, <laughs> um, and he would, you know, and he would go out. And the next door neighbor, Mrs. Rudolph, would say to my mother, 
how do you let him out like this? <laughs> and my mother, my mother would be, ah, let him go, let him go, you know? And, and so it was a really, it was a really crazy life. And, um, was that difficult for you? Yeah. It caused, it caused, it caused me and my mother a lot of pain. There's just no, there's just no other, there's no other way to, to get, to get at it. And is it anywhere tantamount to the pain we see your character play, not your name, your Lloyd in the movie? Yeah. It, do you feel that same pain that resonates in the character? In yeah, the but movie? I, I had it out with my dad much earlier in my life than Lloyd has it out with, with, with Chris Cooper. Um, I, had it, I had it out with my dad not long after I started dating Janet. We, you know, my father and I definitely, you know, really locked horns over some things. And I, you know, I told him some, you know, pretty tough stuff. And, and that was, uh, that was like a miraculous thing for me because it sort of changed my relationship with him. I mean, the thing that's not in the movie is how funny my father was. And I don't even mean intentionally because he was, <laughs> he was, but he was the, he was a character. He was the funniest man I've ever known. Period, flat out, and he, he would he would go on uh, with these ridiculous riffs about people and how they looked and who was wearing a toupe and who wasn't. You know, and be like, he'd be like, Dad, you know, look at you know Tony Tony Bennett's up there. He's looking great. I'd look great too if I had his toupe. Oh, Dad, man. is that that's a wait a second? Uh, Tony Bennett's wearing a toupe, full. Wig, <laughs> and, Whoa. And, so, and so, and so, my father just—I mean, he—and he, and he took it all so seriously. But it was—it was hilariously funny to me. And then, I, and I would start there laughing at. I would sit there and I'd start laughing at him. He'd say, "What are you laughing at?" <laughs> and I said, well, "Dad, I'm laughing at you." And he, and then he'd start to laugh. So I mean, it, it wasn't like we had this entirely antagonistic relationship as as it's portrayed in the movie. I mean that's that's something that's very different but but I mean and, the, and they needed to do that in the movie because otherwise it would have been hard to have the movie because you can't make a movie of Fred Rogers' life with him as the the hero who's going to come through all the obstacles, he's yeah. he's got to be the the mentor in a way. Yeah, he's he, got to be Mister Miyagi. Right, right. He's so we needed yeah, he's, a Karate Kid. Yeah, he's yeah, exactly, exactly. And the Karate Kid's got to have you know some problems. And 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 the thing of you know with a movie plot, of course, it's you know you're not talking about the span of a lifetime. You're spanning you know this this movie takes place in what four days, <laughs> something like that. Five days. I mean, I mean, it's a it's a short, it's a short window of time. I don't know exactly what it is because I mean, he he writes the story pretty darn quickly. I I know that, <laughs> and he only does it in one draft, and and that that story took more than one draft. Have anyway, you ever written a story that took one draft? Yeah, man, you have. Yeah, the the abortionist um, was, was. But was, hold it, that was after like twenty two drafts, right? No, no, that's that story I wrote. I wrote. One draft of that story, the story that I handed in to Granger was the story that Granger put in the magazine down to the fact check and the spelling and the, and the punctuation. I mean, there was no, there was no changes. I handed in. A, I never know. knew that because yeah, we yeah. would, we would talk and yeah, yeah. I, like I would always listening to your tales of writing these stories and 
they you would there would be massive rewrites, massive rewrites, and then it get down to the last day, and you'd write the whole thing yeah. <laughs> on the last day. Yeah, I made the mistake of thinking that my facility at writing the abortionist was going to carry through the me- <laughs> carry through the rest of my career. Big mistake. But but I think that the the other thing with it, with my father in the movie is that there's no way that you can capture the true complexity of my relationship with my father in a movie. Um, because because the, the thing that I did with my dad was not get angry at him. The thing that I did with my dad is, you know, is idolize him and try to uh, emulate him until I realized that that was a disaster for me. Because I mean, I, all of a sudden I was, I was, I reached out of nowhere a, a high level of success, you know, quickly after a really long time of, you know, trying for it. I mean, I was like, all of a sudden I was like 30, what, I was 35 by the time I started working for GQ. And, you know, and all of a sudden I'm, you know, extremely successful. And my father was telling me, you know, you got to go and, you know, you're in show business now, kid. You got to get your teeth fixed. You got to do this. You got to do that. You know, you're, you're in show business now. And, you know, you got to work on your pizzazz and this and that. And, that that really you know affected me for a time because I knew the real story with my dad and I've always known the real story with my dad and to and that real story was you know was very was very very damaging to our household extremely and extremely damaging especially to my mother and to all of a sudden feel that you know I'm going to go out and be this guy was a you know a, a choice that was not going to was not going to end well and so, you know, I went... Uh, so you went the other direction. I went the other direction, yeah. I mean, uh, I, still, I still wear turtlenecks, of course. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Against you, all odds, I still wear turtlenecks. You've always been a dapper guy. You know, but, well, cause there's no way I'm going to shed everything of my, of, my, of my training and my youth. I mean, but, um, but anyway, so that's... But it, it, was a, it was a very, you know, it was a complicated relationship. And now, you know, so I've, I've written about my dad. I mean, I wrote... You know, my father's fashion tips. I, I was wrote, in like GQ back in like 96, right, if I remember. Right, it was in 96. And then I wrote um, a long story for Esquire and my dad's, you know, World War II experience where he was a crooner, where right, he was a right. singer. Yeah. Um, I wrote, you know, several pieces um, for, the, you know, for Esquire.com on my dad, including his fling with, uh, with Zsa Zsa Gabor. So, you know, so I wrote about my dad, but I've never really, really written about my dad until right now. And, uh, you know, and I'm, so I'm writing this book and it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. So I now mean, everything's so, getting stripped away. Yeah, right. Man, what's that like? It's hard. You it's know, hard. It's, uh, hard. it's harder than I thought it was going to be, actually. They, it's, it's said that like writing about your parents can be an act of betrayal. Mm-hmm, right. Do you feel that way? Um, I don't, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I do because it's difficult, it's, it's difficult, it's difficult to do it, but it, I, I mean, it's not, it's not even, it's not even that, it's that, um, I mean, my, my expectations for the book are so high because I want the book to be able to justify the exposure and the revelations and the pain that they might cause. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, there was a lot of secrets in my family that I, as a very young person, had to deal with. And, and that's, that's what the book is about. Is, is this mostly revolving around the pain that your mom was subjected to, or did yeah. it go beyond that? Well, but I mean, as a, as a, I mean, as a, as a boy, as a, as a young man, I mean, to, 
know that your your dad is you know that 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 your household and and your family is really not the center of his life is is you know it's an intense it's an intense thing to deal with as a as a kid and you know i i was i was i was well aware of that so so uh, let's take it to that period of the 90s we're, we're at GQ you write my father's fashion tips and then like about seven or eight months later, Granger gets a job at right. Esquire. Right. And everything changes. It may be hard for people to understand what it was like because when we came in, the magazine was almost dead. Mm-hmm. There might have been like four pages of advertising in the it, whole It was issue. a pamphlet. And you remember sitting in Art Cooper's office. Art Cooper was the editor of GQ. GQ, the, the, the and rival. He would, and he would have, yeah, he was, you know, we, we, were, we worked for the rival magazine. And, and he used to have like a, an Esquire death watch. He would get the issue of, of Esquire and, and say, how long do you think this is going to last? You know, and, and of course, you know, he was, it was this whole boozy nights at the round table thing. And I remember, I remember telling Art that I wanted it to last because I thought that we were better for having competition. And he was furious with those, those huge eyes like eggs in his, in his, remember those eyes? Those, I those remember. Enormous I, eyes like oysters. Yeah. You know, and, um, yeah. And, and, he and was, so and he then, was furious. And, and then in just like one of, boy, a great, movie moment here his editor down the office his own editor his uh, david was his was not just his editor yeah, david it, was it, his protege, protege. I mean, there you go yeah yeah and he went and i went and and you know and art was i mean we were like you know art was the king and we were his knights i remember it was an amazing it was an amazing you know feeling working for gq at that time and then we left and you could imagine Art looking over at the Esquire masthead and seeing all David's writers. Oh yeah, and so well, and as it, I mean, I think that that broke. You know, I mean, you look back on it now, and it broke Art's heart because you know the people that he had given so much to, and and you know none of none of us really proved loyal to Art. We all proved loyal to David, and I think that was just devastating to him. But we arrive. And there's three pages of advertisers in the right. magazine, like one of which is erectile dysfunction. Another was the, the, liber, the, liber, the liberator, the pillow. <laughs> the, 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 there was a pillow that was there that was like a, it enabled you to gain more Kama Sutra-like positions. And it was called the liberator, and there was always the liberator ad. Oh, man. So we come in, and it's all of a sudden, you know, we have to figure out a way to lift this magazine. Yeah. I, I think you took like the biggest brunt there or the biggest burden. And uh, you talk in the recent piece that you just did in the Atlantic about a first story. I think it was the first story it that you the, wrote. It was the first real story that yeah, I wrote. Yeah, so yeah. here you are. We're coming in and we're trying to show, hey, yeah, hey, Art, we're here. Right. And it's on your shoulders. And you get a story with Kevin Spacey. Yeah, right. How did you think that changed your life? It changed everything for me. Because um I mean I did a I did a story. I mean my whole thing at GQ was that I could say anything. <laughs> 
and that I, that I could that that was my job. My job was to say what other people wouldn't say. My job was to say the unsayable. I mean, we. I mean, if you look at some of those GQ stories, if you look at the stuff that Scott wrote, if you look at the stuff that I wrote, I mean, some of that stuff is is unbelievably dark and graphic and disturbing. I mean, I wrote the story on the married couple in porn right before I left, and that story was really, really dark. And I just thought that I was just going to kind of keep on going and keep on tunneling into the center of the mystery of the universe in some way or another, and just kind of just I was just going to keep it was just going to keep on topping myself, keep going, you know. Wherever I was going, I was going to keep going in that direction. And then and at um, the same time, this is the first story for Esquire. Yeah, so it's, it's got to be it's, big and get attention. And, get, and, make, a, and make a splash. Make a splash, yeah. And um, so I went out to interview Kevin Spacey. And, you know, the, immediately people started asking, well, what are you going to do about it? It being the the widespread suspicion or knowledge that Kevin was gay. I mean, virtually everybody I talked to was like, well, what are you going to do about this? And finally, I, I, you know, I decided to sort of do a, some rhetorical flourishes and sleight of hand. But, I mean, we we sort of, well, more than no, sort you, of. You, no, you, we outed him. You we outed him. Out, yeah, out, yeah, out, yeah, you did. We outed him. Yeah. You know, and I'll, I'll never forget, I was, my parents had come down to visit us in Georgia. I was looking at the New York Times and I was reading, I was just talking to my parents, I was reading through it backwards, and I, I looked at the business section. And about like on page three, there was this thing, Esquire and Hollywood in privacy dispute. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked, I was like, wow, I work for Esquire now. I'll, I'll, I'll read this. this. What's this about? <laughs> and it's about, it's about Kevin Spacey's uh, agency calling for a boycott against uh, Esquire and particularly me. Um, for writing for writing the story and for invading his and violating you know his privacy, and all of a sudden you know I I, I had been you know sort of a I mean I'd, I'd won two national magazines award I had every expectation of con, you know continuing along the line and I remember when uh, a young woman came in from Access Hollywood to interview me in Granger's office, and she sat down and I knew immediately I was like. Oh my God, she hates me, <laughs> and she is here. She's coming she, for me, and she's coming for me. And it was, um, it was, uh, it was an education, you know. It really was, and and I th and I think that the thing that really, really bugged me about it is, uh, you know, because I didn't write it, I didn't write it out of a out of a great place. I wrote it to make a splash. I, 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 I always, wrote it. I, I wrote always it to knew, be, man. You're, yeah. You. We're in the position where you were coming up to bat for the first time. Right. Everybody in the stadium was, right. was watching, yeah. and you felt I got to hit a home run. Well, I, 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 I got I got I got to hit a home run. I got to take I I got to take a huge swing here, you know. And I did. And I mean, when I was writing about stuff for for GQ, I mean, I was really writing it to to say the unsayable, and and here it was to say the unsayable in order to get attention and in order to be and there's and there's there's a real difference and, 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 yeah, exactly. and I really believe I you know I've really come to believe I, I, I think that you can tell nearly absolute truths as journal as a journalist if you're motivated properly if if the if the story lives up to that responsibility of telling the truth and knows the responsibility of telling the truth and here it was just like I'm an Esquire I'm cool I really want to make a splash and I'm going to do this you know, and the reaction was just was just terrible, 
was and and God, I mean, I can I can remember it. I can remember it like it was yesterday. It really was. And I mean, I I, I plummeted after that. There was a a year um, in which um, you know my my writing it felt like it was done. I felt like I was done. I, I remember I remember having a conversation with Janet, and we were it was uh, Janet being your wife. Janet being my wife, and we there was a night of storms and. The, the electricity had gone out, and rainy night it was in a Georgia. Rainy night in Georgia, <laughs> and we went into into the the room that I used as my office, and I was with Janet, and I said, you know, if if all this goes away, and I can't do this anymore, are you are you still with me? Well, I never yeah, knew that. Yeah, wow. I mean, it was it was that, it was that bad. It was that bad. And then I wish I knew you were in that yeah, pain. I yeah. Would, it was that bad. And it was just, I mean, there was a lot of things going on. And, and, and some of it was, you know, I mean, you know, you know, my dad, when are you going to go see Tony Curtis, you know? And, you know, it was a lot of, it was just a lot of that. And so then, then he, then my next, you know, during that whole thing, my assignment was to go out and do Jeff George. I was going to do a profile the of Jeff George, the quarterback. The quarterback, and I, you know, was once again, it was an ill-motivated story. I mean, the, the, I had a thesis, which was that, if you want to be an NFL fan, you have to learn to appreciate this guy who's a really a total asshole, you know, Jeff George. And so I went out to, to meet this guy knowing that I was going to, that the, the very conceit of the story was going to have him be eventually called an asshole. And, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I, I couldn't write the story. And, and I was trying to write the story when I met Fred. Wow, yeah. man! I, I was I was writing the Jeff George piece in the mornings when I was meeting Fred in the afternoons, and and I was so I you was, were questioning whether you could even do this anymore. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, when, when I when I met Fred, I was questioning whether I could I could continue on as a journalist. I had no. I thought I was. I thought I was, I thought I was done. You know, and um and and then you know the Fred thing happened, and so you meet Fred in the afternoon. And do you understand what is about to happen? Because in the movie, it's, it's played, and I'm seeing some connections because that boycott mm -hmm. that the agency was threatening could easily be seen played out when the editor calls Lloyd into the office. And, and, says, and says Fred's the only one who would agree. For, we, we've got 40 people that we sent out requests to and only one agreed right. to talk to you. Right, right. You got no choice. What was the actual setup to meet Fred? The actual setup was that we were at a, at a meeting because uh, we were coming out with this heroes issue. And we were at a meeting in Granger's office and Scott Omolanyuk. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> it was, you know, he was an editor. He was an editor, editor at... at uh, at Esquire, who came from GQ to Esquire, he suggested that I do Fred Rogers. And it was specifically, it was specifically on this level of, wouldn't it be amusing and wouldn't it be interesting to have bad boy, you know, to, you know Tom Janot go out and write about, about, you know, the nice man. But, but at the same time, Scott, Scott grew up watching Fred. He was of that generation that grew up watching Fred. So I mean, Fred was, 
Fred, Fred was, was heroic to him. Fred was heroic to him, and I, I, I didn't see, I didn't see Fred as a hero at all. So I you had I no idea this because you were a generation before. Yeah, I mean, as I'm the same age as you, right? And and you remember when Fred Rogers came on? It was like, who's who's this guy? <laughs> you know, I mean, he was sort of instantly a figure of parody. I I, I kind of missed him because I was traveling around the world. Yeah, uh, in in the '80s. Well, I'm talking about like the '70s. Because Fred came on, Fred really came on in national TV, like late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, my head was in a different place, yeah. man. I wasn't seeing that red sweater. Yeah, I just didn't see it at all. I mean, to me, to me, Fred was like, Fred and Sesame Street essentially came on around the same time. It was the, it was the great sort of revolution in educational children's television. Fred, uh, it was uh, Sesame Street, Fred Rogers, and Zoom. <laughs> I don't even remember Zoom from WBET in Boston. WGBH in Boston. Yeah, that's that's what it was. Anyway, so so Fred Fred was not a hero to me. He was a he. I mean, he was a. a it was a caricature. A, yeah, in the, in the red he sweater. He was a, a pop culture figure. Right. But he was not a, a hero to me. So when you hear this, what do you what are you thinking? Well, it wasn't it wasn't like in the movie. It wasn't like I was mad about it. I wasn't mad about it. I mean, it was like I, I you know but I thought did you that have this, an interest in it. This could be interesting. Sure. This could this could this could be interesting. And 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 Scott you know, made the pitch about it. I mean, he, he convinced me that it was a, it was a good, it was a good idea. And, and, and he talked about the minute of silence. He had, see, he had seen the minute of silence where, where Fred Rogers, you know, asks people to remember the people who love them in a minute of silence. And, and Scott used that to, oh, that, that was my favorite it, part of the whole to movie. To sell it, to that sell was, it to me. Yeah, and you know when we'll, we can get we can get to that. You know, yeah. but 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 I remember I remember very well Scott talking extremely passionately about that about about that minute of silence and about and about Fred Rogers, and you know and then I went and and out to meet him and like you know it wasn't I don't think that I thought, you know, gee I'm going to do an expose of Fred Rogers. But I certainly was not averse to doing an expose either. You know, I definitely, I definitely was, I was definitely ready to go there. I didn't, I didn't know, you know. And and then um, I was at the Esquire offices in Fifty Fifth Street, and somehow I got, I got, I guess I had called, you know, Family Communications in Pittsburgh, and had, and they had, you know, agreed. I'd written them a letter. And they, I, I guess, had agreed to, or Fred. In fact, it was Fred. It was. It was in the not, movie. It says that Fred it, read yeah, all yeah. of your stories. Yeah, it, it was Fred. It was Fred. Wow. That, so that, he he knew what was coming. He, yeah, he knew what was coming. He he knew that the guy who had written Kevin Spacey and the guy who had written the rapist says he's sorry was you know was coming to you know to visit. <laughs> And you know, when I was, you know, and I remember, I remember that I have a friend, Lee Crum. He's a great, he's a great guy, but he was just always like, "Dude, he was like, you're the guy I do not want to see at my door," you know. Oh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, and and you know, and I was sort of comfortable playing that role, and then sort of profoundly uncomfortable playing that role. And and I went and I got the number for Fred. And it, you know he was around the corner in his apartment on 56th Street, and he invited and me. And this was like a place that he bought many years. It was a, before. It was a dingy New like, York City. I think apartment. it was like eleven thousand bucks or something. Yeah, yeah, it, it, was, yeah, yeah. it was. a it was not a, a spectacular apartment. And he's in like, his bathroom. Yeah, yeah. And he called me, and you know, when he, he warned me, he goes, you know, I said, Fred, you know, this is you know Tom, you know, you know. 
Esquire, I want to talk to you. And he goes, well, you know, Tom, you know, why don't you come over now? I'm, you know, he goes, I, but I have to warn you, you know, I'm in my, I'm in my bathrobe and my, and my slippers. And, <laughs> you know, and so I, and he, cause he had been taking a nap and, and, uh, and so I, I, I walk over there and by God, he, he's in his, he's in his like blue terry cloth bathrobe and his slippers. And, you know, and he'd just been sleeping. So he went back to like the couch where he was sleeping at and he's talking to me in this sort of, kind of gloomy New York City apartment. And and then we start talking and then, you know, and he had this hypnotic effect. And and I thought, I think I think I asked him, he didn't show, like in the movie, he-, he In the movie, this he is has a back a, and forth of who's asking the questions here. Well, but it was, that was definitely part of it. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely part of it. But in, in, I mean, I remember where I was when he asked me about Old Rabbit because I was, I thought I, I had like a brilliant- question. I think I think I asked him about his, you know, childhood toys and I was like, okay. And he was like, and and what about you, Tom? I bet I bet you had a childhood friend too. You know, and, and it was it was hypnotic, man. I was I was sitting in this dark room and in this chair and 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 I was like, well, I, you know, and it was very, it was very similar to the, to the, um, to the film, to the, to the film yeah. in that way. What about, stuff. there's a question asked in the film. It was hard for me to imagine you asking this question where you're basically asking him about the, the Fred and Mr. Rogers as if they're two different characters. Oh, I definitely asked him. You that. asked him oh, that yeah, question. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Really? Yeah, yeah, sure. And, you know, and he gave me that answer. I mean, and, and there was, you know, I mean, there was no difference between those two, those two things, you know. Um, I think that really comes across beautifully in the movie. There's a lot of things that come across beautifully in the movie. I mean, it really, it really, I have to say, it really struck me last night how good that movie is and how, how much an inhabitant of its own territory. There's not a, there's not a movie like it. There's not going to be another movie you know like what, it. You know what? I, I and there hasn't it, been a movie like it. You know it's, what? It's I a, thought the something. same thing, that it's, it's half a big motion picture, right. but it's also got these indie qualities to it. Yeah. And so you're just moving along in this place in the middle that allows you to feel both. Yeah, yeah. Because it's Tom Hanks. Right, and, right. And, you, and, and, you, you know, and, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a, in a lot of ways, it's a star power performance because he, he relies on, you know, who he is and who we know he is so that we trust him enough to take us through this. I don't, I don't know if anybody could have pulled off that particular thing that he does in that movie. Just watching the expression in Tom Hanks' eyes yeah. was magical. And the camera, there's just great close-ups. And the, the camera it, gets closer and closer <laughs> and closer the whole movie. Yeah, so by the you end, know, you are That's like, all you are, man. When you're, when, you're at that, uh, when you're at the scene in the Chinese restaurant, I mean, they are, and that camera's, I mean, inches away from their faces. That was great direction because you, yeah. know, you know, okay, we've actually seen you getting closer and closer yeah. and closer yeah. to each other, yeah. almost to a point of like discomfort. Right. It's like quite often, if you ask people to look each other in the eyes, like right. close up, right. people don't want to do it. No, no, it's hard. Or, it's hard. or, or somebody will yeah, look yeah. away pretty quick. There's even a game, the staring game. I remember, you know, playing that in high school, like who could outstare, you know, somebody. Yeah, and-, and It's hard. Th there was just a, 
a beauty in the way the film was shot so that by the end of the film, it was like the staring game. Yeah. You were in on their eyes. And then they, the, the director allowed the time for you to take that in. And and both of the actors, I mean, they both register so much. I mean, there's there's it's an I mean, Matthew Reese is just incredible in that movie, and what he allows people to see in his eyes is just I'm just I was amazed by it again last night. This is the third time you saw it. Yeah, it was my first, yeah. and I was like glancing over at you. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was my third time. It is going to be. Really interesting to me to hear how Janet and Nia, your daughter, are yeah. going to look at this film, believing that this is you. Because it well, Janet knows Janet knows the story better than anybody. Right. I mean, she you know she's lived it and, and stuff, and so. But I mean, once once again, I mean, to me, I mean, a lot of a lot of people ask the question about like are the discrepancies between the movie's plot and the plot of your own life you know what do you what, what do you feel about them how do you think about them and they're they're just not what i think about the thing that I, you know the similarities are, are, are just so much more surprising and interesting and em- emotionally potent to me than you know the the differences the differences i mean to me i I look at that as okay well he's lloyd vogel and you know they had to make a plot and the plot i i think is is good but it's it's the the similarities are the thing that just completely (laughs) make me you know i i you know i'm i'm like when when ali starts getting hit you know by frazier and his and his knees are you know wobbling that's that's how i feel when when i see that it's 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 quite it's quite something it's interesting to me because at the time which very few people know i was talking with one of the writers micah Uh and and i told him that when this story came out there was like a big backlash yeah, from yeah. a lot of people. Like, you put Fred Rogers right, on the cover right. of Esquire right. as a representative of a, a of a male American hero. There was a story in the New York Times by the New York Times uh, media writer. Her, her name was uh, Alex Kuschinski, and she had that beat. And she wrote a piece after that story came out about, you know, the, the war between Esquire and GQ. And she made fun of the story, you know, our story. And, and you know, basically, because it was talking about, like, how cool the people were on GQ's cover. And, and now you got goofy, Mr. Rogers how goofy here. Our, our, yeah. cover, our covers were. Wow. And, I, I, you know, and I still remember, you know, the, her line was like, because she, she made fun of the fact that I, I wrote about Mr. Rogers naked. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah when yeah. he was in the swimming pool, yeah, and he's uh, in the locker room, right? And he, and he goes, you know, his line was like, "Well, Tom, I guess it's safe to say that you've seen more of me than most people have." <laughs> um, but anyway, so and so in that in that piece, she was like, "GQ, you know, um, I don't even know who she mentioned, you know." Um, George Clooney in a, in a leather coat, Esquire, sexy septuagenarians. You know, and so she, it, was, it, was, it was something that even the Times was mocking. Wow. It, he, the amazing thing was, with the way I was looking at it, I never saw that story as 
a story about you, your dad, and Mr. Rogers. I'm going to show you something. Hang on one second. All right. Tom's going to show me something. <laughs> yeah, okay, so I'm back. All right, Tom is back. <laughs> the, the way I was seeing it, I had seen what you went through with Kevin Spacey, and so that was what, at the end of 97, Mm-hmm. And this is this is about a year later, right? A year later. I, this is my point. Yeah, and so I, had I, had written, seen, I had written a bunch of stories in between. Right, but I, I knew you were struggling. I'm, I'm watching you struggle. Yeah. We, we never talked about to this depth where you went to your wife and, and are wondering, what if I can't do this anymore? Right. But yeah, I was I was I was definitely not going to share that with anybody. I mean, oh, I mean, because I mean, at Esquire, I mean, it was. I mean, it was it was a, a family feeling. It was a team feeling, but at the same time, you had to do the work, and you, I mean, you you, you know, had to live up to expectations. Yeah, period. You know, you know what was in the movie when Lloyd hands in his story, and the, the, like the <laughs> response from the end, like I love it. We put it yeah. on the cover, and then you look over to me and said, "Well, you know what Grandier said? Pretty good." Yeah, with David with David Granger, the the highest bit of praise that's it. was was pretty good. Pretty, and pretty good. He, I always saw it as if you did something spectacularly great, that meant Granger would give you another chance to try to write a story to write as good. Yeah, yeah. And if exactly. he didn't write a story as good, he'd let you know that too. Yeah, exactly. But I do want to. So I want to read the. Uh, so Granger wrote me after I came out with the essay in the Atlantic. Granger uh, wrote me a note about it. He reflected on the initial story. And this is what he wrote. I still remember the anecdotal experiences I had of people's love for that story soon after it came out. The mail we got, uh, Rockwell Harwood telling me that his mom reminded him he'd come home from like kindergarten and pull off his shoes and put on his sneakers to watch Mr. Rogers. There were people in positions of executive responsibility who didn't understand, but there were more who did. Having him on the cover was an essential mistake. It said something about our intention with that magazine and that issue. But from any kind of rational understanding of what might make a magazine successful, it was certainly a mistake. But screw it, it showed something of what and who we wanted to be. And I love that. I love that, that Granger called it an essential mistake. I mean, that's, that, it, I don't think anything captures David's, whatever makes David special than that phrase right there. Listening to that and thinking back on my memories of it, looking at that piece, and I'm seeing you recovering from everything that happened with Kevin Spacey. It's like yeah. Tom's got his mojo back. Yeah, yeah. And then to see all like this flack coming in, like GQ's over here, they're cool, and we got Mr. Rogers in, in the red sweater. That kind of knocked me off balance because just as you read, I thought, this is who we are. Right, right. Well, I think that, I think that one of the things that was happening back then is that David was trying to do non-celebrity covers, and they all just failed miserably. I mean, they, we, we fi- finally found out that Okay, people complain about celebrity covers all the time, but but if you don't do celebrity covers, you pay the price. And I think that that was the Mr. Rogers story was definitely part of that discovery. Okay, well for me, uh, I rejoiced in that story because I I saw you're okay. Tom's okay now. He's yeah, he's back. 
that story, that story, you know, did did a lot for me. And it, I don't know if it, if it helped me regain my sense of confidence and swagger so much as it uh, helped me regain and rejigger my sense of purpose. So how did Mr. Rogers actually help you? Because you do have a long correspondence with him yeah, that yeah. continues. Yeah. And, and you were just showing me last night, his wife just sent you a note after the Atlantic piece came right. out very right just now. How did the relationship keep going and what did that teach you? I would write to Fred about stuff and and I would report about my doings and Fred was always, he was always approving, you know? He, he, I mean, he was different from my dad in that way because my dad was, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, I know that my dad loved me, but I mean, but my dad, you know, was always, was always, you know, you had to, be a certain way, and and you know Fred just didn't Fred didn't have that. You yeah. know he didn't have my, my one of my favorite scenes from my father's fashion tips is when you show up at your wedding in like a navy blue suit and black shoes, and, black shoes. and your dad says, "What are you a policeman? It's <laughs> <laughs> my wedding day. You, you look like a policeman, you know." <laughs> and so Fred was coming at this completely from the other angle. Yeah. He was yeah. there as support. Right. He was the, the supportive guy. And I, and I would I would write him um, about, you know, what I was writing about. And Fred would be like, you know, I, I, can't, I can't wait to, you know, to see that or whatever. And but I think it's also really interesting is that, you know, during that time, you know, I also wrote a story that was sort of, um, you know, reckoning with, something that I, I felt like I had done really uh, wrong and felt really guilty about, which I wrote a story about, you know, cause about bullying. I, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, man, I remember you that know, story. I wrote, I wrote you yeah. know, the, the Terrible Boy. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, writing about Fred gave me the strength to do that. I mean, you know, I think the work changed, you know, a little bit. I mean, it's, it's not like, it's not like I'm not saying I became like, you know. No, but you know what? I have vivid memories of that story. Yeah. Like the phone call you make. Right. Hang up. Get off the phone. Right. I'm not talking to you. Right. When you call up somebody that you had bullied when you were, when you were young. It's amazing to me how many lines you've written that 25 years later, I can access yeah. with a finger snap. Well, because it was, I mean, I think that those, they were lines that I felt like I needed to write, you know? And so that's, that's what, you know, kind of makes them, you know, you know, memorable. And so as you're moving forward in life with Fred, how well do you, so you have his support. Are there other things that came out of the relationship? Well, I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things, and I think it really goes to show who Fred was, so right after when the when the story came out, you know, David Black, my agent, got you know the idea that I should write a biography of Fred, and I went down to Pittsburgh with David, and we had dinner with Joanne and Fred in an Indian restaurant, and it was a it was a really really nice dinner, and that's where I learned about his vegetarianism, because <laughs> uh, he he ate at a at a at a vegetarian Indian restaurant. But at the same time, I knew somewhere along the line that he just, that he was not going to go there. And I don't know if I really wanted to write a biography about him anyway. I'm not too sure. But there was just like, 
he just wasn't going to go there. And people had always told me that about Fred Rogers, like the people around. It was like that he's extremely stubborn and that he has, you know, a will of iron. And if he doesn't want to do something, he ain't going to do it. And it was so it wasn't like, you know, when, when Fred and I first sort of hit it off, it wasn't like I put something over on him. Is he chose, you know, he chose to befriend me and to trust me and to bring me in. And that did not happen on the biography. He didn't, he never said no. He just didn't answer. Wow. <laughs> he just never responded to the to to David's to David's notes to him. It, you know, it, it never it never happened. And it didn't affect our relationship at all. Um, I would still I would still call him occasionally. You know, later we, you know, adopted Nia. And I mean one of the first things that and Fred was gone by this time. But you know, one of the first things I did, you know, when Nia was old enough to is, is Joanne Rogers was coming to town and I took Nia to see Joanne Rogers. I mean, Joanne is, Joanne is, is, a, is a part of my life yeah. right now. I mean, I, you know, that message that she sent me the other day, the phone, the phone message, you know, was one of the best responses to a story I've ever gotten. So when, the, when... Even though Tony Curtis was the tops. <laughs> Tom... I read that story you wrote about me. How kind of you. <laughs> Still the best. <laughs> so what was it like and and how was it when you were notified, hey, these two guys, they want to write a film about Mr. Rogers and your experience with him. How did that play out? Well, it was, I mean, number one, shock. I mean, by, by, this, by this time, I, I, I was, my, my record about not having movies made and not having films made from my stories was immaculate. It was, I was batting a thousand in terms of not ever having any interest from Hollywood in something I had written. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been at it for a really long time. And I mean, not, you know, not even so much as like a feeler, you know, when it came to having, you know, pieces turned into, into movies. And, you know, all of a sudden there were two guys wanting to write about a story that A, was, by that time it was 16 years old, and, and B, um, was about Fred Rogers. It seemed almost as absurd as the original idea, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and... And but of course, you know, I, 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 listen, I listened to him, and and the the interesting thing about what they said in talking to him was that the essential structure of the movie, which is that it's a it's an episode of the neighborhood, and Fred Rogers is talking to you and telling the story. That was that was there from the beginning. That was part of their pitch. Okay, and they had that they had that idea, and I thought that that in itself was was just brilliant. So I was, uh, you know, I went. I so went. you were open to it. I was open to it, and I went out to um, L.A. in uh, December of 2014, and you know, those guys picked me to the bone. You know, I, I gave them. I, I was about to give them my life rights, and they call it the life rights for some, re you know, for reason. And and so the, those, you know, you know, Mike and and Noah, they were, you know, they were. We talked for for days about. My life, and that's where you know that's where the story about you know the dad. And yeah, the, that's where the I, I told story. him about. That's where I told him about my dad. You know the way he you know he was, and um, see, because I can never see you get into a fight like a physical fight with your dad. 
No, I never, I never got into a physical fight with my dad, but I definitely got into a fight with my dad that was, that was large. It's really, it's really amazing to watch the movie because there's so many things that I've never written, so many things that I don't remember telling Micah and Noah that are in there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, so when I had, I had a, like a, a big battle with my dad where I just kind of let it all out, you know, and I left the house and came back. And, you know, my dad was uh, waiting for me. It was like two o'clock in the morning and he was waiting for me. And, uh, you know, he said what he says, what Chris Cooper says in the movie. He said, you know, I, I've always loved you. And that's somehow in the movie. I don't know how it got there, but it's there. So, well, that, that to me is the magic of the film. Yeah, is it, it, yeah. it managed to convey your life experience in a way that actually made me feel like it was a different character, but we were getting your experience. Yeah, it. yeah. Well, that's how it feels to me. I yeah, mean, I, okay. I, it's. I mean, I'm there and not there, but more there than more there than not there. Especially, I kind of like the more. It's 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 wild, uh, and it has a lot to do as you know, it's like with the acting. You know, it has a lot to do with Matthew. A lot to do with it. So, so when you went out and and saw the film for the first time, and your name is on the character at that point, what do you, you think? Not when I saw the film. When it's when when I when I got the script. Oh, okay, that's. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's that's exactly the way that I described it in the Atlantic, and and the I mean the strange thing about it was, you know, it was my it was the first reporting trip I was taking for the book I'm writing about my dad, and I was in I was in Florida, and I was going to to see this guy who was sort of a protege of my dad, in Miami, and my 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 father had this whole different life in Miami, and so I figure if anybody's going to know, you know, the stories about you know my dad from that time, and there was one thing I was really, really trying to find out. And so I was, I was pulling up to his house. I mean, I was literally, I, I was there and I was parked and I was ready to get out and say hello to, you know, this former handbag salesman, this retired handbag salesman. And um, phone rings and it's, it's Micah saying, you know, we, we finished the script of the movie, a uh, draft of it, and we love it. And uh, we want you to read it with an open mind. <laughs> just like oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, that's like that's great that's great that's great what <laughs> oh, man. I was like so uh, what what do you mean by an open mind he's like and, and you know and, and Michael was you know he was very forthright he goes everything that's in there about you and Fred is completely accurate he goes and everything that's in there about you and your family is completely made up and you know and I I, I said that I would read it with an open mind and you know and then I I read it, and there were there were also some things in the in the first draft that I just couldn't live with, and I'm, I, my memory is that they that the that the character of Lloyd was in trouble for making up stories. Oh, that would have been disastrous. And that was, that was like I, I can't yeah. have that I can't have that associated with me at all, and um, because that's that kind of stuff just sticks to you. And I've and you know and I mean I did you know the Michael Stipe story on you know I wrote a fictional uh, version of of a Michael Stipe profile in 2001. I well um, remember that. <laughs> but you came back with The Fallen Man. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I mean, that was, I mean, we obviously told the readers that we were making that up. So it wasn't like I was making up stories. Um, but anyway, so so there were just some things in the in that first draft and then that I just couldn't, I couldn't 
you know, live with. And, and that was just like sort of just too fundamentally different to have, you know, my family's name attached to it. And so I, you know, asked them to change the name and they changed it to Lloyd Vogel. And, um, Good choice because it, it's, so, it, it's, it's so not it's so, you. It's so not me. And, right. and yeah, they didn't do like John Trudeau <laughs> or something like that, you know. Uh, um, but yeah, so they they did it, and then they did you know they did they did more they did more drafts, and I mean I think they did five of them before the the movie went into production, and then you know I went I went there and uh, talked to um, Matthew Reese in Pittsburgh. Uh, and you know, and I got my pockets picked a second time. You know, I mean, <laughs> Mike and Mike and no, I thought that Mike and Noah had picked the bones clean, but but Matthew uh, Matthew was after something even different, which is, I mean, he was he was after the essence at some level and, and found it. It's uh, that is really one of the educations that I've definitely gotten. You know, which is don't play cards with an actor. <laughs> oh, man. You are, I, I think that those guys see us as just a compendium of tells. <laughs> and, and they have the ability to see them and to reproduce them. And all your twitches and, and stuff, they somehow manage to absorb and then to put out on the screen. It's an amazing, it's an amazing process to be part of. But you're pretty happy with the way the film came I'm out. Ex I'm extraordinarily happy with the way the film has come out because I, I, I mean, I think it's I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, I think it's unusual. I think it's unique. And and I, you know, I mean, the the fact that I'm involved in that and that I'm able to sit and talk about it with people and to talk about Fred's message is 20 years after this, 21 years after the story is writing. It just seems. I think I called it in the, the Atlantic piece, I call it like a, it's like a finding, you know, a moral lottery ticket in your jacket pocket. Right. You know, and, and it's, and it's, it's worth a fortune, you know, I'm of love and kindness at a time when love and kindness basically doesn't exist. It's amazing to be a part of it. And it's amazing to be able to talk about it. I mean, I, I couldn't be, I couldn't be happier about it. And I mean, so it was, but it's, I mean, it's, but it is unusual though. I mean, I, I, I was at a, been you know going to screenings and I was at this party after this screening in Virginia a couple of weeks ago three three weeks ago I guess and this guy comes up to me and he goes you know I love your I love your work and I was like great and he was like he goes but this is this is going to be your legacy whoa and he goes no matter what you've written no matter what you're going to write this is this is going to be your legacy and I mean I don't I don't know if I agree with them. Because like, to me, I have I have something I have something up my sleeve um, that I that I hope is that I hope you know lasts that I hope endures, but that's what he said. I I don't know if I'm okay with that because of course there's a part of me that's competitive and and that's well, you, you, I'm, I'm, you a don't writer, wanna, I'm a writer that's so right. I don't, I don't you, wanna, don't, you don't want to feel like you're done. I certainly don't feel like I'm done. I mean I think that the thing that I've I've really enjoyed about my career is that I'm still you know I'm still swinging. I mean that Atlantic Monthly piece is to me is. As good as, good as as good as anything that I've done. So uh, you know, I mean, I'm 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 happy with the way that everything's going, but but it was definitely something to think about, you know. I, I am sure that you ain't done, man. Yeah, I don't I don't feel done. But and the, but this is just like a it's like a 
it's like another opportunity to think of the kind of work I want to do and where I want it to be. Somebody asked me today, because like all I've done all day today is like interviews and talk about Fred. Yeah, that's you, all I've done. That's been my whole day. Right, and you're in the Four Seasons. Yeah, it's very Beverly nice. Hills. Yeah. You got a driver. Right, right. Yeah, it's like you know I'm having like this Hollywood experience, but at the same time I'm like the humble messenger, you know. So, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I just so I, I talked to a, a woman from a, a religious website and. And she asked me, is there, is there any thing that you've learned from this process that's going to um, help steer the book about your dad? And I just thought that was a great question. And I said, you know, I, I said, I have idealized my dad and I've emulated my dad and I've tried to reject or turn away from my dad's example. I said, but I've never forgiven my dad. You know, I mean, I think that... Think this book is forgiveness? I, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't feel like that now because it feels, it feels like a reckoning, but I hope that in that reckoning there will ultimately be forgiveness. Wow. I, I felt forgiveness in the movie. Well, the movie's about forgiveness. Yeah. I mean, the movie is about forgiveness from the third line. I mean, when Fred is, when Fred is talking to the audience, he's talks about, do you know what forgiveness is? Right. Can you, you know, basically, can you say forgiveness? And I mean, that's... That, well, maybe that's, what that that's guy that's was talking on. about was, was that, that in this film... It's we, what, we, it is what he was talking about. Yeah, we get the forgiveness. Well, whatever's going to happen in the book, we don't know. You don't know. I'm waiting. And I think that that's the tough part about writing the book is, you know, I, I talked to, um, you know, my friend J.R. Moringer about... Oh, yeah, um, he wrote Andre Agassiz's. He wrote Andre Agassiz's, and he wrote, he wrote his own, his own uh, oh, memoir. That's right. Yeah, it's great. Uh, a Tender Bar, which is that's a right. great, great book. And I, I met him back in, in April, and I was just talking to him. I was just like, you know, I, I feel like this book has to be at a level that I've never, you know, even reached or to just to justify its very existence. And he was like you have to write the book that presents itself to you. He goes, you can't set that kind of standard and hope to write a book. He said, you can only write the book that presents itself to you at the time that you're writing. And he goes, if you wrote it five years from now, it would be a different book. If you had written it five years ago, it would be a different book. You have to write the book that's presenting it to yourself now. And it was the, it's the best advice I've gotten about writing the book. Well, now I can't wait for the book to come out. We'll have you back then. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> this, this has, has been, been beautiful. I, I, yeah. I learned so much that I never knew at the time, even though I thought I knew you pretty well. We all play our cards pretty close there, Cal. <laughs> uh, uh. Well, thank you, and I'm so proud of you. It was well. Thanks for doing this. This is fun. I'm glad you. I'm glad you like the movie and all that stuff. Yeah, I would encourage everybody to go out and see it. And what you realize is that, look, if they would have just had Mr. Rogers' life, there would have been no movie. Right. They needed a, a karate kid to have well, their, that, to a degree, Mr. Miyagi. That, that movie has already been done. I mean, Won't You Be My Neighbor was that movie. That, that's I mean, right. It's, it, it's, a, it's the, the documentary that came out last year in the summer of 2018. It is a beautiful documentary. 
but that is the biopic of Fred. That, that's this right. Is, this is not the biopic of Fred. And I'm glad because the, the fact is, I think that bio, the biopic is the most hazardous of genres. I don't even know. I can't even think of like a good one. You know, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't go in, in that direction. This is, this, is, this is Fred telling a story. And in doing so, he tells his story. I mean, this, the storytelling voice, it's Fred Rogers talking to you. Oh, I, I got it. And it's all about you know? forgiveness. Yeah. The whole movie is about forgiveness. When's the last movie that you've seen about forgiveness? It's highly unusual. Okay. We all got to go out and see it again. Okay. I'll take my family. I hope you do, man, because I'm, I'm taking my family in a little while, and it's, it's going to be a wild night. Well, thank you so much for being here. Your Sportiques will be delivered. wonder when the Sportiques, why don't they make a turtleneck? Okay. Matt, Jason, you hear that? Time for a Sportique turtleneck. <laughs> the ever-expanding Sportique line shall now include turtlenecks. I'll make sure you get the first, Tom. Thank you. All right. Cheers, brother. All right. That about wraps it up. Wanna thank another guy who grew up on Long Island? Tim Ferriss. For nudging me to start this podcast, it keeps taking me to wonderful places. Also want to thank my sponsors at Sportique. I don't know if Jason and Matt will start making Sportique turtlenecks, as Tom suggested, but they are expanding their line. So go to sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and check out the hoodies, sweats, comfy tees, and chinos. I'm telling you, players in the National Basketball Association have been seen in the Sportique office checking out those threads. Down the road, there's going to be an even bigger fashion splash. So remember, use the offer code CAL and get 20% off. And let me know what you think of the movie, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It'll be released on November 22nd. Great way to spend the Thanksgiving holidays with family. I'm going to take about 17 members of my family to see it. Have a happy holiday. And cheers. Cheers.